Welcome to the Jewelry District, a podcast by JCK, brought to you by the De Beers Institute of Diamonds. Today, Rob Bates and Victoria Gamelski talk about New York City Jewelry Week, holiday forecasting, and a sustainability report from the World Wildlife Fund Switzerland. Hey everyone, welcome to the Jewelry District. This is Victoria Gamelski, Editor-in-Chief of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from Los Angeles, and I'm with... Rob Bates, News Director of JCK and jckonline.com, calling in from New York City. How are you? You sound a little... A little stuffy? Yes, a little stuffy. I've been stuffy for like a month. I don't know what it is. I think it's a raging sinus infection, and I feel fine otherwise, but yeah, very congested. It was like this, you know, even in New York when I was in town during the first half of November for Jewelry Week, but yeah, otherwise I'm I'm doing all right. Um, I hope this clears up because by the time people are listening to this next week, I will be in Miami for Art Basel. Mm. I'm going as a guest of Cartier, which is sort of an oblique way to see the art world's most illustrious kind of gatherings or to experience one of the art world's most illustrious gatherings. Cartier is debuting an exhibition called Time Unlimited at the Miami Design District, I believe at its boutique in the Miami Design District, focused on the history of its timepieces and kind of its pioneering shaped models. And You know, what's interesting is when they invited me and kind of shared the goal of this initiative of this exhibition, which runs from December 7th to the 22nd, it was to really sort of shine a light on their watchmaking, which I think to most of us in the watch and jewelry industry, were well aware of Cartier as a force in the world of watches. And yet I think out in the greater world, perhaps their jewelry, you know, is just better known. And your average person, if they're going to think about Cartier, they think about jewels and not watches. But is it, I I mean, I believe, and you can correct me, that it's like the number four watch or the number three brand or something like that. I mean, it's up there. Oh, yeah. It's definitely up there. I mean, I guess it depends on how you rate them. But if you think about like the Morgan Stanley rankings that come out that talk about market share, Cartier is up there. I, it's definitely, I want to say in the top five, and it's certainly well over a billion dollar brand, one of a handful of billion dollar brands in the watch world. So there's no shortage of people buying Cartier watches and coveting them. And, and even over the last few years, as, as the brand since the pandemic has really been on a tear, a lot of interest at auction, a lot of rising prices in the pre-owned space. So it always surprises me when I hear that people don't know it as a watchmaker or aren't as aware of, of its great history in the watch world. So we'll see. We'll see what comes out of that. But um, at least I'll be in a warm, you know, luxe location. Nice. Miami's beautiful. It is. And and this is a great time of year to be there. So I'll just be there for a few days next week and I will report back. Otherwise, you know, I guess what I wanted to talk about is a little bit of, I guess, what I saw and experienced during Jewelry Week. So I saw you in the office. Did you get to check out any events during Jewelry Week? I don't believe so. There was a WJA event that I went to. Yeah, there were were a lot, um, quite a bit of events. And I did my best to hit as many as possible. But of course, New York City Jewelry Week, which I guess was celebrating its fifth edition. You know, it's grown into quite an affair. And... There are lots of competing events, so you might have a perfect calendar, but you're going to inevitably miss scores of things happening because it's hard to get around Manhattan or and Brooklyn for that matter because a lot of events are happening out in far-flung galleries in places like Gowanus and Bushwick, which are just hard to get to in the thick of traffic. One event I want to mention is I went to an event at the Peruvian Consulate General in the middle of Jewelry Week. It was put on by a group called Reciprocity, which is a collective of international jewelry designers working to create a mind 
to-market project by directly collaborating and partnering with artisanal miners from Peru. And so there was a panel discussion about sourcing, you know, responsibly and sourcing traceable gold from Peru. And then there was a collection of jewelry that represented this year's reciprocity exhibition. And the thing that really struck me is that with each of these pieces that I saw at the exhibition, these really interesting gold works, some by American designers, some by Europeans, and some by Peruvian designers, they literally had the name of the gold miner in Peru who mined that gold. And so this was like as hyper traceable as as I can imagine. I really haven't seen that before. I don't know if you have. Have you ever seen any collection of jewelry or any raw goods that can actually name the miner who produced them? No. I once went to this sushi bar in Midtown Manhattan. This is uh-huh. true. And they said, we're going to bring out the farmer who produced the rice that the sushi was made from. So they brought this guy out. It was him and his wife. And I guess he didn't speak English, so we didn't have much to say to each other. And he left. But yeah, that's probably as close as I've gotten. Knowing the, the miners' names is, is it's pretty hardcore. And I assume there's a story with it because otherwise, what's the, the end user? What are they going to do with that information? Well, right. I mean, so they had pictures of the miners and they talked about this collective. And the gold is sourced by a collective called Amataf that Unfortunately, I don't have what that acronym stands for, but it's based in the Madre de Dios region in the Peruvian Amazon, and they're committed to responsible mining practices. They don't use mercury. There's a sustainable mining model in place that you know allows for the miners to earn a fair price for their efforts. I don't know if the end users meant to do anything with that information other than to know that their purchase has really benefited a specific person. These efforts about tracing and origin, they are gaining steam for all kinds of complicated reasons. We can elaborate on some of those, but you know, some consumers care. Some consumers, not most consumers probably don't, but there is a growing community of buyers, consumers, probably I would dare say, you know, millennials, Gen Zers, perhaps Gen Alpha will be the generation that makes this sort of an obligatory thing, but where they do care about where their goods come from. And so it is a growing movement because I don't see that the industry would be offering these things if there weren't some demand or some sense that consumers are asking for them. Look, I was just, I was going to buy some coffee pods off of Amazon for Black Friday. And I decided I wasn't going to buy this thing. And then I kind of scrolled down and they showed the co-op where the coffee was made. And, you know, it was kind of the typical pictures of smiling people, but definitely made me think twice, like, well, maybe I should buy this thing. I think it's a good story. I think it shows that not all mining is bad. We deal with this with Labron diamonds and with some other things that people have this idea that everything mined is terrible and some mining is not very good for the environment. That's an undisputable fact. But, you know, mining supports a lot of people. And I guess it's a good way to distinguish these gems and give it a personality. Because as Monica admitted, you know, a lot of these places, a lot of these mines, even though they're way above most other mines as far as safety and environmental stewardship and and things like that, but a lot of them are not that nice. You know, they're difficult places. It's mining, it's working with your hands. And it's, uh, I think you want to kind of tell a, a good story about it because you don't want people necessarily assuming the bad. Yeah, well, precisely. And certainly the diamond industry is embroiled in this, exploring this 
as we speak. Another event I went to during Jewelry Week was at the retailer Stephanie Gottlieb's showroom in the heart of the Diamond District. Now she's a mega influencer, so lots of people will know her. She's got 470,000 followers on Instagram, got a thriving e-commerce operation, also a showroom. And she was on the trip to Botswana that I did in May. And I wasn't quite sure why she was there other than Clearly, there was some partnership with her and De Beers. And as it turns out, they were exploring this partnership that resulted in the debut of a new collection of hers called And a Half. Now, the collection grew out of a single piece that was a best-selling diamond design where there was a central hero diamond. And the collection now builds on that design and it has, you know, hoops and huggies and collars and bracelets and rings. And what the partnership with De Beers involves is basically each of these central hero diamonds has a code of origin inscription that is inscribed on the diamond that links to well, that is connected. There's a QR code that comes with that diamond. When you click on it, you're taken to multimedia content that talks about the origin suite of services by the De Beers Institute of... Um, De Beers Institute. Of, I think they're our sponsor, De Beers Institute of Diamonds. Yes, it's the De Beers... Sorry, I was... Yes. It's, it's the De Beers Institute of uh, Diamonds. Somebody's putting the ads in our podcast origin suite of services. So, well, yes. you know, we, we've talked about this, but of course, De Beers has been working very, very hard for at least the last five years. A blockchain platform called Tracer that then they then really promoted to the industry at the JCK show last June. That is the underpinning of this whole origin suite of services. It is through this blockchain platform that diamonds can be traced. Now we know they can be traced to De Beers for the four countries where De Beers mines, Botswana, Namibia, South Africa, and Canada. Not yet can they be traced to any specific mines, but this idea of tracing and origin and provenance has just exploded. Much of it clearly so that diamond buyers and diamond sellers can prove to diamond buyers that they're not selling diamonds that originated in Russia. So a lot of this has a real specific urgency to it because of what the G7 will do and when, you know, in 2024, when it's expected that, you know, the industry here will need to prove that its diamonds did not originate in Russia, even those cut and polished elsewhere. So we've talked about this before, but it's just fascinating to see how that idea of traceability and provenance has really blossomed into like a whole cornucopia of options, you know, whether it's miners that are involved with this reciprocity initiative I mentioned, or Stephanie Gottlieb selling diamonds that come with an origin service. I don't know, thoughts? This is a topic you've certainly covered. So yeah, I, I mean, look, I, I think this is very important as far as the industry's long term future and the establishment of Tracer predated the Russia issue. But with this Russia issue right now, the expected sanctions against Russian diamonds, we're starting to see a lot more demand for things like Tracer. And there's a few other options. There's Everledger. There's a bunch of them. And I think one of the questions now, and this is something that De Beer CEO Al Cook raised in a recent letter to the G7, is there's going to be a lot of diamonds on these platforms. And it's not 100% clear how well they're all going to be able to be handled. But yeah, this is this is the future traceability. I mean, the diamond industry, which once weathered a huge, huge issue 
about traceability and conflict diamonds. I mean, that was basically all about the origin of its good, right? So it definitely needs this and it's, it's, it's important. And I think it's also good. And I think this is one of the things that this De Beers origin story is attempting to do to tell people a little about the places where diamonds come from, that the mines are, are not all the same, that Botswana has highly industrialized mines with a unionized workforce. And they're not the same as, as perhaps some of the mines in like Sierra Leone or the DRC. So yeah, I think it's good to get that message across. I think it's good to kind of be a little more open and upfront about where diamonds come from. And this is something that the industry has traditionally not liked to talk about. And this is definitely the, the wave of the future. This podcast is brought to you by the De Beers Institute of Diamonds. The De Beers Institute of Diamonds mission is to grow and strengthen consumer confidence by providing integrity across the natural diamond industry, offering unrivaled diamond grading and testing exclusively for natural untreated diamonds. The De Beers Institute of Diamonds provides diamond tears with confidence in a report of each diamond's four C's. Every diamond graded at De Beers Institute of Diamonds is also given a unique inscription number, allowing the diamond's details to be tracked and viewed on their website. Visit institute.debeers.com to learn more and register for their grading services. On these panels you attended at the Jewelry Week, was there any dissenting voices or did people talk about how difficult this is going to be or the the problems? Not at the panels I attended, but mind you, you know, the event that I attended at the Peruvian Consulate was, you know, such a micro community of designers who really, really care about these issues. And so the people that were there were all really on on the side of sustainability, responsible sourcing, ethical sourcing. I mean, there was weren't really any dissenting voices in the room. I also attended a really interesting panel in Indigenous Jewelers, which was less about sourcing than it was just about design and material usage and how to honor various tribal heritages and histories in the form of jewelry, which was fascinating. So, I, you know, again, these sort of formerly marginalized communities, whether it's a small collective of Peruvian miners or indigenous jewelers from various communities across the U.S. and Canada, it, it was really interesting to see some of these voices come to the fore or hear these voices come to the fore. And I think we'll see more of that, more of that as people become interested in just giving voice to people who historically have not had it. And I think that's wonderful. I just think it's absolutely amazing. And it just enriches the whole industry. I mean, you know, one last note about Jewelry Week, the last event I attended outside of the conversation I had with Strong and Precious, of course, our last guest, Olga Oleksenko, representing the Strong and Precious Foundation. I did a session on a conversation with her right before I left for the airport at the end of Jewelry Week. But the night before I went to the Rock the Jewels event put on by the Black and Jewelry Coalition, and it was a serious, probably the best party of all all of Jewelry Week. Quite a number of people there, industry people, designers, up-and-comers, emerging talents. It was an award ceremony, so there was just a lot of fanfare and celebration, and you know, for an organization that was, it's only three years old, it, it's really gathered so much momentum, you know, quite a bit of people are aware of it and want to celebrate it in the industry. And so it's a really good feeling to see organizations that did not exist that re- represent a community that really was never called out or addressed specifically prior to 2020. And suddenly, you know, it's the hottest party in town. So congratulations to Bella Naiman and J.B. Jones, the co-founders of Jewelry Week, for yet another, you know, stellar affair. There was just a lot of great content, great ideas, and, and really cool people to meet and talk to and think about. And, you know, I, it's been kind of a difficult year to 
figure out to parse in terms of the economy of the jewelry industry and how jewelers are performing. I just read your story from today about Black Friday jewelry standing out as a category. So what is your sense of how the industry is trending for the holiday and what this year might how we might end up, you know, at the end of 23, will we will we have a very down year or do you think that we're going to see a little a little light here at the end of the year? Well, I, I think it'd probably be a down year from 2022 just because that, that was still the COVID effect stimulating sales. So in that sense, it's probably going to be a little bit down. It's been a really mixed year and you've seen that with some of the sales from some of the big companies and it hasn't been a terrible year. I mean, I, I mean, you and I have both seen terrible economies and I don't think that's where we are right now, but you have very rare situations where everybody's happy. And I think in COVID, I would say most people in the industry were happy. We've certainly seen a lot of situations where everybody is unhappy, like after the financial crisis. And this is one of the probably, and this is, I found more common that it's kind of a mixed bag. Some people are doing really well. Some people aren't doing so well. I think it's it's been a tough year, but people are hanging in there. And, and certainly the initial indications from Black Friday, and we quoted in the, in the article you're talking about, we quoted from, I think, MasterCard and Retail Track, I think is the name of it, and Adobe. And they all found very good results as far as jewelry. They all said jewelry did very well on Black Friday. Well, we'll have to see, but I think we're off to a really good start. And definitely anecdotal evidence. And from what I saw, and I was in New Jersey over the holiday, I mean, the malls were were mobbed, were crowded. I mean, like they haven't been in years. So that's all a really good sign. Oh, yeah. No, agreed. A little anecdotal report of my own. My sister works for Broken English, which is a really well-known designer jewelry retailer here in L.A. They've got a store in the very posh boho chic Brentwood. Mart. They've got a new store on Crosby Street in, in New York and, uh, and of course, a thriving e-commerce business. And from what I understand, their Black Friday weekend sale, like fantastic, phenomenal results and uh, well over last year, which is so interesting. I wouldn't have thought that. But yeah, so jewelry being a bright spot over the Thanksgiving weekend, I totally agree. Or, you know, based on my limited, limited reporting. So yeah, I guess uh, that all bodes well. We always have to kind of say all this with a grain of salt because, of course, we, we don't really know until after. We speak to retailers in early January about how they did, and we see some reports coming out about the industry as a whole and retail as a whole. So we'll do a more thorough check about the 23 holiday in early 24. I guess the only thing I would add to that is we're starting to see the kind of familiar pattern, and we saw this before the pandemic, of the high end and the low end kind of splitting apart and the high end doing really well and the mid end and the low end doing less well. And I think a lot of the gains that we're seeing this year have definitely been on the high end. Well, it's funny you bring that up because my interview that I've got scheduled in seven minutes, so we're going to wrap this up soon, is with Milton Pedraza, the head of the Luxury Institute. And one of my first questions on my list for him is, are we seeing that bifurcation continue or or are wealthy people feeling the pinch this year in a way they haven't in previous years? So I, I'd be curious to get his take, but yeah, it does always seem like there's a certain amount of, I guess, immunity to the fluctuations of the greater economy when you're in that 
high net worth sector. So we'll see what he says. And we'll we'll revisit this in early 24 when we have some more numbers and statistics at our fingertips. One thing I just wanted to touch on quickly before we part ways is, and you did a story on this, and it's this report that came out from WWF Switzerland, which is, of course, the uh, Swiss branch of the World Wildlife Fund, the famous conservation organization. And in 2018, WWF Switzerland put out its first report, a sustainability report on the luxury watch and jewelry industry. And it's no secret that the industry, in terms of rankings, did not perform well. This is back in 2018. There was a lot of work to be done, primarily, you know, so much work to be done in terms of transparency. There was just quite, it's, you know, it's always been an opaque business, but even at that very high end where you've got publicly traded companies, it's still remarkably opaque. Well, so cut to November, let's see, when was it? November 8th. And they put out their next report and the inbox subject line that I received was WWF watch and jewelry rating there is still much to be done. Do you want to pick that up? Because you wrote the piece. So. Yeah, and I, I spoke to the, the person who wrote the report. I thought it was interesting. And again, it gives you a wider perspective. The thing that this gentleman who wrote the report kept stressing was that compared to other industries, first of all, this one does not have that complex a supply chain. I mean, every industry has raw materials that they need to trace. And he brought up the example of cars, like cars have a million parts, right? And they're made of all sorts of materials. So that's a really difficult industry to get a hold of your supply chain. But by comparison, you know, jewelry is relatively simple. There's usually like three or four parts and that's it. And a lot of the times those industries are farther ahead of us. And that's been a problem and that still is a problem. And you mentioned the opaque nature of the industry. I mean, I think it's very interesting that a lot of these brands just didn't even talk to the company. And uh, one of the things that struck me as I read this is that, and I'm not saying that, you know, everything in this report is gospel and 100%, everybody has a certain filter. And, you know, this report rated companies a lot on on whether they engage with NGOs and stuff like that, which is which is good, but it doesn't really change anything in the in the scheme of things. But I think one of the things that's interesting is I always get very upset when I read things like about lab grown diamonds and they tout them as sustainable. And it's pretty obvious that the author hasn't looked into the issue and hasn't even asked the people involved uh, about the sustainability. And I think it's a danger for any kind of journalist and any kind of writer writing about these kind of things, you always have to kind of look at the fine print and understand exactly what's happening. And again, that's the whole point of transparency and traceability. And that's where a lot of these brands don't really measure up. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I haven't really spent much time with the report, but one thing that surprised me was to see Breitling kind of lower down in the upper midfield, but, you know, well below a number of regional brands. Maybe it's it was the timing of when the report was researched, but Reiling has a very extremely capable, very smart global head of sustainability named Aurelia Figueroa, who I interviewed for the Times for a piece that ran in November. And I have to try to understand why the WWF didn't rank Breitling higher, because to me, they seem like one of the brands who are really leading the charge. And, you know, not just to me, to, to other observers of the industry. What are your thoughts on that? It's just, in the end, one organization's opinion. It's a respected organization, and I think they did a thorough job and they try not to be biased in any way, but it is in the end an opinion. 
but that was something I brought up with the with the author of the report. And he said, again, that just because they have this one traceable watch doesn't mean that every watch that they produce is traceable. And it was also another interesting point that you saw is that the companies that were owned by conglomerates, and particularly LVMH and Richemont and Kerrig, tended to do better than some of the other companies. And that might be because they have resources, but they also have that kind of knowledge pool that they can kind of work with each other and kind of source communally. So in that way, uh, standalone brands are probably at a bit of a disadvantage. I wouldn't say it's a complete disadvantage, but clearly, uh, if you go by the reports, uh, these conglomerate-owned brands have a, a bit of a leg up, and not every LVMH brand scored the same or every Richemont brand, but I think that's something that definitely helps. But yeah, I guess the point was just because you have a sustainability officer, and I'm sure she's a highly competent person, and and just because you make all these noises and claims, that doesn't necessarily translate into that you are where you need to be. And this is, as it always is, this is something that evolves. You're never quite at sustainability. You never reach the kind of point of sustainability. You always have to be thinking and finding ways to become more sustainable and to always improve your processes. And uh, even some of these companies with huge financial backing still have a way to go. So slowly but surely, we will get there. We will get there. Or, you know, perhaps there's no there there. It's that this is a constant, to your point, a constant perennial process of greater effort towards sustainability but there's not like some destination where we will all have reached it at one point and say, okay, we're done. This is over. We're here. Yeah. And that's, you know, when you, when you see these brands calling themselves sustainable, we're a sustainable brand, we're this, we're that. I mean, you're never, there's never like a moment where you say, ta-da, you're sustainable. You should always be improving and looking at your processes and trying to make them better. One thing that I've noticed lately is a lot of people are just shying away from that language in general, you know, calling themselves sustainable, calling themselves carbon neutral. There's just so many ways to get around those concepts. You know, I'm not going to say they're devious ways. I think people are generally or companies are generally trying to do the right thing. But, you know, if you're buying a ton of credits to offset all your emissions, it's not the same thing as actually minimizing and not creating as many emissions in the first place. And so this idea of carbon neutrality, it just starts to mean less when you realize there's a wide, wide spectrum of companies um, and the way they achieve that and what that means. So all these words about, well, we're sustainable, we're ethical, we're responsible. I mean, there's just such a great gray, you know, swath of of grayness there about what it all means. There's not a lot of clarity. So I do think we're seeing people be a lot more thoughtful about how they promote themselves, certainly, you know, to avoid greenwashing, to avoid giving the impression that they're trying to sound good without actually delivering the goods. Can I disagree with you a little bit? I think I see plenty of greenwashing out there. And well, yeah, no, for sure. I, I Not to say it's not existing, but I do hear people like feeling... You know, when I think about my conversation with Aurelia Figueroa from Breitling about how they're not really promoting themselves as carbon neutral anymore because of the, you know, wide degree of difference between companies who approach that effort. So I'm not saying this is 
the vast majority of companies and plenty are still touting themselves. Plenty are still talking about recycled gold as if it absolves them of any responsibility with respect to their supply chain. And I I think that on the edges, we're starting to see people react to that and realize, okay, well, these terms being abused more and more. And they they should mean something and and they don't right now. Well, thank you, Rob, as always for a provocative and thoughtful conversation. Yes. And thank you too. Uh, And it was good to see you last week. All right. All right. Well, until the next time. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to The Jewelry District. I'm Natalie Comet, the producer of the podcast. Our editor is Riley McCaskill. If you liked what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast wherever you may listen. Any views expressed in this podcast do not reflect the opinion of JCK, its management, or its advertisers. Thanks for listening. We hope you join us next time on The Jewelry District by JCK.